Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. All right. So thank you again, um, Professor Schiller, for joining me this morning. Um, this is Friday, and today's date is September 27th, 2019. Um, so exciting news about your new book, Narrative Economics. Uh, when is it coming out again? Well, the official publication date is October 1, but I think you might find it already in some places. Yeah, and I and definitely you can uh, get um, you can pre-order. So, what is your ultimate goal of narrative economics, um, and how can a deeper dive into the data of stories um, help to separate cause from consequence? I mean, you you do elucidate a lot of examples in the in the book of how maybe a frugality mindset might have um, exacerbated the Great Depression. So how can um, some of the, uh, the research that you're doing help to really shed light on this and maybe even um, offer solutions that uh, prevent uh, economic events from being deeper or longer than they need to be? Well, it seems that the economics profession has had some success in forecasting economic events. I think uh, there has been a, uh, a tendency to miss some of the most important factors, which are changes in people's thinking uh, that they get from each other uh, through a kind of contagion. Uh, the problem is what drives all these business fluctuations? <laughs> I think we have to look there for the causes of many fluctuations. Uh, the problem is that uh, human conversation hasn't in the past and still isn't largely recorded or available for searching, but it's getting a lot better. So we can can start to see what people are thinking and how it's changing. And I think this will bring a revolution in economics. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, um, one of the consequences after a major economic event is that, you know, some mindsets might become very contagious, uh, as you noted, the frugality mindset uh, after the Great Depression. Is there any sort of mindset going on right now that um, you're observing um, and you think should be talked about more than it might be? Well, there are some that are obvious, and one of them is uh, Donald J. Trump, and in other countries, other populists like him. Uh, there's, yeah. Everyone's talking about it. I can't add to it in any significant way, uh, except to say that it really has dominated our talk. Uh, well, it's a small percentage in total, but it comes up with such regularity, yeah. uh, and it's polarizing. But that's obvious. I think there are other narratives that are not uh, thought of uh, so much as narratives. Uh, one of them is uh, the artificial intelligence uh, narrative, which is, would be stories yeah. about particular inventors or inventions who are inventing machines that will really replace 
human intellect. Uh, yeah. I think that's one that's lying in wait to affect our confidence. It it it's it's there. It's definitely there, but I can't claim that it's uh, reduced our GDP yet. Yeah, and we, you know, I just saw an ad for Superstore where the one of the employees is screaming um, that robots are coming to take their jobs. So it reminded right. me of what you were talking about there, <laughs> how that can be something that uh, really, uh, I guess it's like a deer in the headlights, it does stop. What, what does it do? Does it stop confidence, which stops consumption? Is that right. how it really affects GDP? I think so, and that's how it happened in the past. In the Great Depression, there was a lot of talk of robots replacing jobs. Believe it or not, it's not part of our conventional history of the Great Depression. Yeah. The word robot was invented in 1920 in a play by Carol Chapek in Czechoslovakia, uh, and that was, uh, it had, in the Great Depression, when people saw unemployment going up, they blamed it yeah. on robots. And a machine. They didn't have robots that walked around and talked, but they had plenty right. of machines. Uh, Absolutely. And so they thought that was what was happening. And I think it could happen again, uh, because artificial intelligence is such a stunning development and yeah. through things like driverless cars or uh, pilotless ships, <laughs> you, it, it looks like it's going to do something to our jobs. Yeah, and drone strikes and all of that. Now, when, when we talk about what lessons we can learn from the Great Depression, I'm just wondering, like um, in today's world, in the wake of the Great Recession, um, has credit returned more quickly to the consumer than perhaps it did during the Great Depression? I'm just wondering how much of this is also just access to money because, um, you know, when you have people that suffer so great of losses, whether it's from stocks or from the housing market, we got both in the Great Recession, probably both in the Great Depression, I'm guessing. Um, you know, was it just at this time we were able to get money back to the consumer more quickly? What are your thoughts on that? Well, our credit markets have developed a lot since the Great Depression, uh, and they're regulated better. They didn't uh, in the early years of the Great Depression. There was no Securities and Exchange Commission, or there was no uh, Financial Stability Board. There was no Consumer Products fin Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So mm -hmm. we learn, and things are, are better. Uh, but I, I think that it, we still are vulnerable to a consumption pullback. Even though interest rates are low, um, people can afford to consume more because the, uh, the, the cost of doing that is lower with low interest. Borrowing to do that is lower. But it, it, I, I think the narrative is it's not the only thing that affects the economy. I don't mean that. But it is an important thing, and mm -hmm. it's uh, right now consumption demand is holding up in the U.S., and uh, that could change, though. Yeah, I mean, I, the truth is that, uh, you know, credit card debt and um, consumer debt is higher than it's ever been. So a lot of the consumers, you know, businesses can borrow from extremely low rates, you know, through the uh, loan market, I mean the bond market, but uh, consumers, many of them are borrowing, especially for their f small businesses, I hear this in all the conferences that I speak at, you know, they're really borrowing at credit card rates, which are exorbitant. I mean, they're, yeah. they're usury rates, really, you know. You don't hear that word so usury I, 
<laughs> so much these days. Uh, no. So there, there, there has been variations in people's willingness to borrow. Uh, it's not just due to the interest rate, the low interest rates. It's because of a kind of story about prudent living, a narrative again, and it, it's holding up now. People are, although the the uh, the cost of borrowing uh, is is not so is not so high because interest rates are relatively low now. If you yeah. don't do it on the credit, if you borrow against your house, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So this market, you know, I was talking to Lizanne Saunders a couple of weeks ago, and she was telling me, uh, giving me data, saying that this uh, bull market has been largely built on corporate buybacks. And that up until the 2016 election, she said that, um, you know, the bull market was the Rodney Dangerfield market, that it wasn't really getting any respect. Um, since then, and according to her research, she believes that you know there ha the consumer confidence is higher and that skepticism might not be as pervasive. What are you seeing in you know your research of um, you know the stories being told about stocks and or uh, the housing market? Yeah, well, I don't always have uh, the, the most current narrative uh, stories being told about stocks. Uh, I think that one thing that's happening is there's a fading of the worry about crash. I actually do questionnaire surveys of uh, individual investors, and I can tell you that I've been doing them for over, uh, uh, well, close to 30 years. The, yeah. the lowest uh, ebb of support for safety in the market was right after the 2009, right at 2009. People thought, although the market had gone down, you know, something like 50% in real terms, they were thinking it would go down even further, a lot of them. They were yeah. talking about 1929 at an exorbitant yeah. level. So it was a narrative that came back. Now that narrative is, is fading. Uh, we, we still call that recession the Great Recession, which is a play on the word Great Depression. Yeah. It's still in our minds, but it, I think the recovery that we've seen since then is partly due to just forgetting about the stories we heard about people losing their houses and uh, mm -hmm. suffering under unemployment. Uh, we don't, we don't, they're not fresh in our memory anymore, and that helps explain. So it, it may be more that than new narratives. It's also the Donald Trump narrative, which uh, uh, provides a script for a, a new way of living. Yeah. Uh, more ostentatious. You may feel more embarrassed to be poor. Uh, Trump talks about losers. He's very harsh in his judgments of some people. And he's, yeah. So I think that affects our our thinking that we have to keep spent, we have to keep up with the Joneses, as they used to say in the Great Depression. <laughs> they used to say that yeah. pejoratively. Yeah, and now you think that it's become almost a bad. I mean, McMansions are not coming back into style, but um, definitely people are uh, categorizing themselves as winners and losers. That's for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. The right. The shift to nationalism is not just in the U.S. I mean, it's in a lot of uh, it's a problem in a lot of the developed world. You noted that this was the case before uh, World War II and Hitler and part, you know, contributing to Hitler's rise. Right. So, what are what's at stake here? Well, I've, yeah, this is getting into politics. Uh, I I am worried about, uh, as are many people, about the polarization 
in our societies and the rise of uh, of primitive nationalism. Uh, to some extent, it's, it's leaders imitating each other. I think uh, yeah. a lot of people around the world are looking at Trump and being marveling at his success. And uh, so it's a logical thing to do to try it here in my country. And that is a that is a scary. It, it's also I, I keep emphasizing that uh, my part of my theory is about going viral, uh, ideas going viral. But it's also just being forgotten. So we I think another idea that a narrative, powerful narrative that's being forgotten is World War Two. That was such a nightmare, such a nightmare. And uh, for a long time afterwards, people were much kinder to each other and and supportive of minority yeah. well, not in all dimensions but they, they were willing to support international uh comedy and mm-hmm. uh, that's fading and so we're slipping back into our tribal past and uh, it's worrisome well even from an economic standpoint you can talk about um how nationalism you know uh maybe tariffs, trade wars, that sort of thing. What are the impacts uh, traditionally of tariffs and trade wars? Because this gets lost. I mean, a lot of people are not even aware that, um, you know, American businesses and even largely American consumers are going to bear the brunt of these tariffs and trade wars. But in general, what do economists think of tariffs? Are they an effective tool to stoke economies? Or is is it the exact opposite? Well, ever since Adam Smith, who wrote The Wealth of Nations in <laughs> 1776, economists yeah. have a visceral negative reaction to tariffs. They think it's just protecting less, you know, less competent businesses. Uh, yeah. it, it's, it happens because of bribery of one sort or another. Uh, on the yeah. other hand, we do have a problem of rising inequality, and it's not being addressed. Well, maybe... Uh, some of our a couple of our democratic candidates seem to be addressing it but it it's yeah. a tough one a uh, tough one to implement it's a better it may be a better election strategy to uh focus on immigrants as a threat to our jobs because <clears throat> we can think <clears throat> we can do that uh without uh but even so <clears throat> it it it's potentially damaging to the economy and not only is it potentially damaging in the real cause as a real cause, but it's also a narrative that we remember from the Great Depression. A lot of people during the Great Depression thought that the trade war created by the Smoot-Hawley tariff in 1930 Mm -hmm. was the cause of the Depression. Uh, So it's an old narrative that is uh, recovering uh, as people see it happen today, and it may have even worse impacts on our economy because of that. Do economists think that that um, that that act, the tariffs, uh, that uh, well, it was right around the time of the Great Depression, right? It was um, right around then when it was passed, right around in what the 30s. Right. Well, in the 1928 so, uh, election, uh, tariffs yeah. uh, came up, and then in, it was in 1930. That was that was just months into the Great Depression that yeah. the uh, smooth Hawley tariff was put on. Uh, and it didn't so, stimulate. It didn't work. It didn't stimulate. Yeah. The, con- the country just sank into the worst depression ever experienced by 1933. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it could be, uh, I mean, I'm sure that there have been many white papers written on it. So it could be a, a kind of a, co a toxic cocktail of uh, frugality plus the, um, the nationalism that actually exacerbated um, the Great Depression or were there other contributing factors that we need to be looking at today as well? Well, I think one important factor in the Great Depression was that people uh, were thinking more about confidence and others' confidence. It was the, 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 it was a general trend over the early 20th century that people were reading more about psychology. And mm -hmm. they thought that depression, well, it referred to a mental state, but it also referred to an economy. The first uh, surveys uh, to measure consumer confidence or business confidence occurred in the late 1930s by George Gallup. Uh, and now we have these confidence numbers talked about all the time. One thing that's changed is we, we have the stock market reported every day prominently yeah. Uh, yeah. as if that was a measure of confidence in the economy. Actually, it's measure of a measure of confidence in something more narrow than the whole economy. But we've accustomed to thinking of that as a barometer of our national psyche. Yeah. Now, um, the White House has been very vocal about zero interest rates. Um, the Federal Reserve has, we've seen uh, three dissents now with very wide-ranging view on where interest rates should be, although, of course, the policy has been to cut it, and, um, and the market, at least, is expecting another cut in December. What are the potential problems with continuing this policy? Are you concerned about asset bubbles, financial instability, um, negative interest rates haven't seemed to serve the rest of the world. Why would they serve us? Yeah, well, it's a complicated uh, decision. That's why there is dissent at the Federal Open Market Committee. Uh, and I think that part of the reason that it's ambiguous what to do is because it involves human psychology and human narratives. Uh, yeah. uh, the idea of cutting interest rates all the way to zero uh, as a dramatic stimulus measure, is, is, is I, I'm a little un, I'm more than a little uncomfortable with that uh, because it, it it's it's like your uh, doctor giving you a strong antidepressant for your mental condition. <laughs> you you think after you hear that you think I must be really mentally ill if he gave me that. Uh, yeah. So it, it, that harms your psyche. So I, I think I've, I've called the zero interest rate the Z word. Because once you say that and implement it, then people think, wow, we must need strong medicine now. And it reminds them of the uh, famous narrative of the lost decade in Japan, which turned out to be lost decades yeah. after they cut yeah. interest rates to zero. It didn't work for them either. And so that's yeah, and I mean, you stimulate. Are you concerned about asset bubbles or financial instability? I mean, that's something that I've been seeing in the financial stability report, and especially what 50% of the corporate bonds are now just a hair's breadth above um, junk bond status. Ford was just downgraded last a uh, couple weeks ago by Moody's. Are you concerned about this? Yes, I am concerned because there is a there is a debt uh, liquidity cycle uh, and a leverage cycle. So uh, we're seeing corporate uh, balance sheets being more leveraged, and that's uh, that has been a sign of. 
I don't like to use leading indicators exclusively, but it has been a sign of uh, approaching uh, recession. And we could be there. There's also a question whether the recession will be uh, how big and strong. We will have a recession eventually. I don't know about yeah. in 2020. But if uh, if the, if the memories of the 2009 uh, financial crisis, uh, 2008-2009 crisis come back, that could uh, that could harm confidence. So you're saying that just the narrative itself could actually create um, a deeper recession than would otherwise need to be. Well, that's the idea that I'm promoting in my book, Narrative Economics, that they actually are a causal element, that uh, narratives are like diseases, uh, whether good or bad, but uh, it's like influenza. Influenza lies relatively tame until... Suddenly there's a big epidemic, or maybe it's not so big. It depends on mutations in the influenza virus and maybe something like weather conditions. Uh, but uh, the, 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 I think the same thing is true with, with narratives. So uh, like I was saying, the, the artificial intelligence narrative doesn't seem to be scaring people, but it's there, and it could, it could come back into a big scare. Right. And it's interesting because you said it also, like in the dot-com uh, recession or previous to that, it was actually not a scare, but something that everybody wanted to profit from, right? That's right. And then the dot-com thing came to an abrupt end. Around the time Barron's wrote a, uh, that's an investor's magazine, wrote an yeah. article called Burn Rate. <laughs> it documented how many of these dot-com companies uh, we're close to insolvency, <laughs> so it became a yeah. sudden narrative that this is it. It also came after the new millennium. We had been hearing all these expansive yeah. stories about the future, and here we are now in the year 2000, uh, and uh, it's looking kind of iffy. <laughs> Maybe we were suffering a hangover after our new millennium party. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Um, it's interesting also what I, because you were talking a little bit about um, how, you know, Don, the Donald Trump um, narrative is one of winners and losers and wanting to be richer. But the interesting thing here is that the sharing economy and micro mobility and, um, you know, preferring bikes that are kind of hallmarks of the millennials and the Gen Z. Uh, is this at all a factor? Could this be signs of a new modesty craze that might start competing? Um, yeah. What do you What do you think of that? Yeah, you mentioned bicycles, or uh, or you could also mention scooters <laughs> are starting to appear mm-hmm. more. That that yeah. happened before, during the Great Depression. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of stores set up bike racks outside in front of their store. Because it, it, there was a big switch to riding bikes. <laughs> it happened then. It can happen again. Right now, it yeah. isn't associated with poverty so much. But uh, it no. could become associated with that. It, the bikes are relatively cheap. Oh, interesting. So even though this move is coming about, it's not. it can still play into the Donald Trump um, I'm winning narrative without it. It's not necessarily seen as frugality. Yeah, that, the problem with narratives is they're so subtle that you can't just focus on a word in the narrative. Yeah. You have to look at how it's 
told. It it's ultimately reflects humanity and the deep complexity of our minds and our emotions. Uh, so the idea is that some kind of new narrative just gets started, uh, yeah. and it goes like wildfire, and it can uh, it can stimulate demand or it can contract demand. Uh, it's not something that we can view at this point from a purely mathematical uh, viewpoint. We have to look at the content of the story and what is it that makes it so contagious. Yeah. Yeah, and it is, as you were saying before, it is kind of difficult sometimes to separate cause from, from uh, you know, something that's actually causing it or something that an economic event happens, such as, um, you know, people lose their jobs and then they start worrying about the robots and that becomes contagious. Or, you know, all of a sudden, um, you know, you get like, I, I do want your comments on the repo market, the overnight market. How does it go from 2 to 10% overnight? And then all of a sudden we hear about uh, a rescue going on. What, what is really going on there? Is that a leading indicator of anything? Uh, turmoil in the banking system that we need to be more cognizant of? Well, I think monetary experts view that as, as far as I know, it is just a uh, glitch that will be handled by the Federal Reserve. That, mm-hmm. yeah, that the 10% interest rate was momentary, <laughs> disappeared quickly. Yeah. Uh, but it could get magnified. The question is, how does the story uh, received by the public? And so, for example, in uh, October 19, 1987, we had the biggest stock market one-day drop ever. It was over 22% on the Dow in one day. Yeah. So that could have led, and there, there was talk of the Great Depression then, but it just didn't register then uh and so people thought it was just some technical glitch uh and they they went on and there was no recession after that but yeah another time it could be the story could take a different dimension and this do is what's think, hard to predict do you think that perhaps um i mean ronald reagan was a was really good at um you know slogans do you think there was some slogan that he managed to pull out that people just bought into uh, a, a Reagan slogan. I'm I'm thinking of Reagan jokes. <laughs> he had some great jokes. <laughs> I can use them. I've used them in front of audiences, and it read it still works. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and his and well, the Reagan jokes were generally from the Soviet Union, <laughs> so yeah. it was very effective. Soviet Union, which didn't allow free speech, uh, did generate word of mouth humor that was very telling and that's what i think of as reagan is most famous for well do you want to tell one of his most famous jokes uh yeah okay so a man just bought a new car in the soviet union okay and the salesman is signing the final papers and the salesman says funny thing i see that your car will be delivered on today's date exactly 10 years from now (laughs) <laughs> and then the the buyer of the car says, "Morning or afternoon?" And the salesman <laughs> says, "Well, if it's ten years from now, uh, how can you care whether it's morning or afternoon?" And then the buyer says, "Well, the plumber is coming by in the morning." <laughs> oh, yeah, that's definitely uh, something that would be effective. Um, and apparently it's so effective it can tear down walls, right? It, it, yeah. And so those big changes 
in the Soviet Union were yeah. narrative into you know when I visited Moscow in 1989 I was struck at how people would talk against the government I thought this was not allowed and I don't yeah. didn't see it in newspapers my tour guide I had a tour guide that gave me a tour of the Kremlin uh, yeah. and she said this is the official interest guide she said I think civil war is coming in Russia wow said, what <laughs> Uh, so it seemed like uh, I experienced glasnost, as they call it, freedom of speech. People were really doing it, uh, and that was word of mouth. And it wasn't due to the internet. It wasn't. That was uh, 1989. No internet. No. Right. Uh, no newspapers reporting on this. Yeah. But there might have been some sort of economic depression or something that preceded that mind shift. Anything well, that you, yeah. I mean. We went into a department store, and they had nothing there. And there was long line. I asked somebody in line, what are you standing yeah. in line for? And he said, soap. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. That, that'll, well, I, that'll, I, yeah. There's yeah, an, yeah, uh, some it, things weren't working right, and they sensed hypocrisy, and they wanted to change. Yeah. There's an ancient Chinese uh, saying that the emperor stays in power if the economy is good. And if the economy is not good, then there's a divine, um, you know, how they used, they used to replace them by divine authority. And um, the divine authority was so highly linked to how well the economy was doing. Probably works for elections, yeah. too, right? Uh, that's a good story. I, I didn't know that one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I studied uh, Chinese uh, philosophy in in college. It, I mean, who knows? It was just a survey course, but um, that struck I, something that struck me since I like yeah, economics. This is it. You you remember the jokes and the narratives easily. I don't mean just yeah. you. Yeah, everybody does. Now the housing market right now appears strong. Houses are higher than ever. Uh, prices are higher than ever. There's still sales going on, but the unaffordability index is starting to look very problematic, particularly in the cities that have the strongest labor. Um, are you seeing any signs of a shift in the winds uh, in the housing market, or do you see any potential problems that could start becoming warning signs, like? Unaffordability, I would assume, is a leading indicator. Yes, well, uh, we have a, a, our own S&P CoreLogic case Schiller home price indices. Yeah. And with our latest data, uh, th there seems to be still going up nationwide in most places, but uh, other other overall, it's going up at a much lower rate. It used to be in the double digits shortly after the bottom of the housing market in 2012. But now yeah. it's, uh, well, on a national index, it's about 3%, but uh, it's much lower. And th Now, that is a sign of weakness, and it, it's a sign that this market is different from the stock market. It has much more uh, momentum to it. So if, if we're losing momentum, it could suggest it drop off, like we saw in 2006, before the financial crisis, but it, it's a slow thing. It's hard to hard to hard to predict uh, where it will go from here. Home prices have gotten a lot higher than they were in 2012. Um, yeah. So you could easily imagine that we'd see a drop in home prices. Uh, but I hate to uh, suggest that it would be anything as dramatic as we saw 10 years ago. Yeah. That was an unusual. That was the most dramatic drop in real home prices 
we've ever experienced. So yeah. Uh, well, there, there, there certainly are fewer liars' loans and um, extreme over leverage like there was then. It seems to be at least there. You know, the the research that I've seen. Well, we have uh, regulation that's discouraged uh, discouraged over leverage, uh, and also. Uh, People are uh, more careful now. Uh, I think there is still a uh, fear of debt, uh, oppressive mm -hmm. debt. It's an old narrative that goes way back to Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> even before. Wow. Well, let's talk a little bit about your CAPE ratio, because that's something I've been monitoring now for a couple of years, and it seems like it's been extremely high for a couple of years. Can you just talk to us about where the ratio currently stands and the risks and implications of that? Yeah, well, the CAPE ratio is a price per sh real price per share divided by 10-year average of real earnings. So it differs primarily from a price-earnings ratio in that we don't just use one year's earnings, we use a whole decade's earnings for the denominator. Mm -hmm. And that's because earnings jump around a lot from year to year, and they can yeah. even be negative. Uh, and so it, it makes sense to average over a longer time period. So the CAPE ratio for the S&P 500 now is in the high 20s. It's between 28 and 29 or thereabouts. Yeah. And that's, uh, that is high by historical standards since the historical average is something like 17. So we right. have a high. But it's not as high as it's always been. Uh, if, if we've, we had a price-earnings ratio of 46 in the beginning of 2000. That's like 50, more than 50% higher than it is now. So we could certainly right. keep on going up and not break any records. But right. it is a concern. I think that the uh, expected return on the stock market isn't as good now. On the other hand, if you're thinking of pulling out of the stock market to go into the bond market, you have a problem <laughs> because the bond market has very low yields still. So it's not yeah. so clear what to do. I would say be careful about over-investing uh, uh, in the U.S. market and consider investing around stock markets elsewhere in the world to diversify better, but uh, there's no uh, reason to panic at the present time that I see. We'll, we'll find out. Yeah. That's what Trump likes All right. to say. <laughs> we'll find out. Do you have any last thoughts? And I thank you for your time. I know we're uh, coming up on the 30-minute mark here. So do you have anything... Um, any last thoughts on uh, the economy today uh, and or narrative economics that you want to make sure that we um, consider? Well, I just think that uh, economics profession is changing with, with the times and in particular the availability of data. So we have digitized text uh, for all sorts of sources of, of human uh, exchange. Uh, mm -hmm. talk and conversation and this will but it will take decades for economics profession to sort this out but we're in a position where with modern computers which will be an essential element of the research we ought to be able to classify and organize our thinking about narratives narratives repeat themselves in history but they have to 
you have to have them up to date. And there are so many narratives that it may require a computer to become complete. It's hard to summarize the effect of all of them, but I think we'll get yeah. there. Yeah, and I mean, there are some big uh, recurring narratives that you outline in your book, right? That's right. And, and uh, they can come back. Uh, yeah. they, they may sound dimly familiar, but there are enough people that remember them that they provide a background against which to take off again. And they may have a human interest component that, uh, that is very strong. Uh, any, any narrative involving some people making a lot of money fast <laughs> tends to be contagious. That's why we have bubbles. But there's other kinds of, there's also narratives that are, have a different emotion attached to them, not so much glory and making a lot of money, but it could, can also be anger at other people and uh, the willingness to boycott something or some nation or some product. Uh, mm -hmm. These are all narratives that can come back. So both of those actually played into cryptocurrency, right? Both the people making a boatload of money quickly and also anger at the system? That's right. Uh, it was sort of an anarchist sentiment. That was, the anarchist uh, narrative goes back to the early 19th century. Uh, hatred of government in a sense that if the government just didn't exist, we would be fine. One reason cryptocurrencies have been so popular is they seem to suggest a route toward a real lack, a real cutting off of government influence. That we uh, cosmopolitans can run our own business quite well. Thank, thank you. We don't need the government yeah. regulating us. Yeah. On top of that, we had this nice mystery story about Satoshi Nakamoto, yes. who was the supposed inventor of Bitcoin. And you know what? Nobody can find him. Nobody knows <laughs> who he was. Maybe he doesn't even exist. Maybe it was some committee somewhere that wrote that. Yeah. Uh, and that actually adds to the, it's a mystery story. People like mystery stories. And it reminds people, whenever someone comes forth claiming to be Satoshi Nakamoto, <laughs> those are famous narratives, those like uh, Anastasia or the uh, Dauphine. Yeah. Era. <laughs> when someone is can't be found and uh, uh, imposters coming up, keep coming up, that that's a great narrative. Yeah. Well, I thank you for so much for your time and um, providing clarity on where we are today. So you're not seeing in you. You even said that perhaps 2020 is not a recessionary year, right? So you're you're not um, right. you're not seeing doom and gloom on the horizon here. No, and there's also a question of how bad a recession it will be when it does come. A lot of recessions have been mild. Let's hope for the best. All right, that's, those are good words to end on. I hope <laughs> yeah. that uh, I, <laughs> I hope that you are um, feeling well, and um, and I'm sure your book's going to do great. <laughs> okay, thank you. Okay, thanks so much. All right, bye. Goodbye now. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry. 
Sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.